Okay, y'all, let's turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. This is part 2, right? Uh, Last week I told you about Nancy and my missionary romance, right? I did. But I didn't tell you how we proposed, so I thought I would do that. Now remember I told you I handed her a stack of letters. How many of y'all remember that? Well, the next two months, she called me every day wrote me two times a day and begged me to come see her every single day. Nope, that's not what happened. I wanted that to happen. It did not happen. What happened was there was still a major hurdle in our relationship. There was a friend. And this uh, friend was coming to visit her in December from Austin. And this friend was not a woman. And this friend was traveling thousands and thousands of miles, taking a week off work. Uh, just to see another friend and say, hey, friend. So I thought, this is a very interesting friend we have here. So when this friend came to visit, I pouted, I moped, I uh, hung my head for a whole week while this friend was in town. Uh, my teammates and all my talks thought something bad happened back home. Uh, I said, no, nothing bad happened back home. It's worse than that. She has a friend. Um Right after the friend left, she called me from Moscow and said, he's gone. It was the best news ever. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm happy again. I'm a normal human being again, right? Well, that January then, that two months later, uh, the team spent two weeks in Interlaken, Switzerland. Anybody ever been there before? You know that's the most unromantic place on the planet, don't you? I mean, it is, it's unbelievable. Uh, at the, the village at the base of the Matterhorn wasn't constructed for cars, so you're not allowed to have cars in there. It's old school combined with new school. Uh, you have to take sleighs pulled by horses. Uh, it is an unbelievable place of lakes, breathtaking views. Uh, so we spent two weeks, uh, pretty much uh, all the waking days together. At the end of that two weeks, I knew. And so I called home and I said, Mom, I, I, she's the one, Right? So now I go back to Alma Tal and I have a Kazakh friend make a ring for me. And I mark on my calendar March as P-Day, proposal day. And I'm getting all excited. I call her uh, roommates to make sure the plans are made to surprise her. So she's surprised. The day arrives. I go to the airport. I give the attendant my ticket. And she smiles at me and she simply says, uh, airplane's not working. Like it was the most normal, ordinary thing she said all day, right? And I looked at her and I said, but, and I pointed for emphasis, I see the planes. And she said, uh, airplanes, ni robota. They're not working. No petro. I said, oh, like that was the most reasonable thing I've heard all day, right? Uh, I eventually get to Moscow. Surprise her. Uh, we're walking. Where did we have our first conversation? Do you remember? Red Square. Grab a Pravda newspaper, we head to Red Square. It ends up being the last Pravda newspaper under communist rule. Then the name changes. Uh, Lay it down, get on my knee, and I ask her to marry me. Right? The woman of my dreams. And she is, and she still is. Uh, Marriage is a big deal. Marriage is loaded with power. Marriage is loaded with life-shaping energy. Uh, marriage is loaded with mystery and divine DNA. So I want to welcome you 
to a match made in heaven, part two. We're looking at part two of a passage uh, back in this chapter. Uh, We're looking at verses one through five, the messiness of marriage, six through nine, the meaning of marriage. And today we're tackling the meaning, okay? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your word is true. We thank you that your word is living and active. And Holy Spirit, we celebrate the reality that uh, you are the great helper, the great paraclete. You bind yourself to us. You have united us to Jesus. So all that... All the spiritual blessings that we need are ours. We ask for them now. We ask for more vividness and graphic detail and reality of all that Jesus is and has accomplished for us to be made real. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. The first thing we need to know about marriage is this, that marriage is meaning. It's DNA. It's essence, right? It's uh, composite structure is inescapable. The meaning of marriage, the matter of marriage, the significance of marriage is already set. It's already fixed in a cosmic cement. It can't be re-engineered and retooled. It can't be restructured. It is already set in the deepest pillars of relational realities, right? Marriage is already inescapable in its meaning. Two through four, if you look, the religious leaders want to mess around, though, with the meaning of marriage, right? What do they want to do? They want to redesign marriage according to their desires, we saw last week. They want to recreate marriage by their own power. They want to generate their own meaning in marriage by their own human effort, right? In other words, they want to act like God. They want to take God's place. Uh, Specifically, they want to seek to build marriage and divorce around many messed up reasons, right? We saw from the Mishnah and we saw from common practice that marriage and divorce could be built around any and every reason. And the key was any and every reason that a man had because a woman had no power and had no control in marriage in the ancient Near East. But Jesus responds in verse 6 through 9, right? Take a look at that. He is saying marriage is not flexible. It's not moldable. It's not Play-Doh. You can't pick it, pull it, twist it, shape it, 
mold it into whatever you want it to be. It's already set in cosmic cement. Marriage is inescapable. Verses 6 through 9, Jesus is basically saying, Hey, fellas, marriage already has its own relational gravity. It is set and it is fixed whether you want to believe it or not. Whether you like it or not. Whether you submit to it or not. Relational gravity means this. If we work against that relational gravity, we fall hard in our marriages. If our marriages work against the the fixed relational structures that are placed by God in it, if we work against it, we fall hard. We hurt ourselves. We hurt one another. We hurt our children. We hurt the community we're in. If we work with it, however, we start flowing with the current of the cosmos. We actually move in the waters of the glory of God. We touch the realities of God's deepest joys and pleasures and power and peace. Uh, We start imaging and reflecting splendid things, awe-inspiring things. We start reflecting God himself and the way he relates to us. And we actually have deep, meaningful ministry in each other's lives when we keep within the gravitational realities of marriage. After Nancy and I got married, we got on to the business of getting to know who we just married. We really didn't know each other. So that first year was a tough year. And not to mention the first four months of that year were spent, where are my parents? There they are. Spent living with my parents and my brother while we were raising support to go to campus ministry in Boston the first four months. I remember waking up one morning and Nancy's making pancakes and Pete walks up, looks over his shoulder and says, hey, they're they're time to be flipped. You need to flip those pancakes. I remember uh, we were going to the mall together on a date. Nancy, me, and Pete. (laughs) And Pete, I hear him pounding on the bathroom door. Are you done yet? Yeah. And then when Nancy comes down, remember Nancy's from Dallas. We're from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She comes down and he goes, good night. Why are you so dressed up? We're only going to the mall. Ah, those were very good old days with the three of us, I must say. Uh, Nancy tells tells Christian to this day, listen, you owe me big time. I made Pete marriageable. You really, really owe me. Well, that first year, what it did is it revealed lots of things about us. It revealed all the messed up reasons that we have for marriage. Right? Right? It revealed our mega desires and our tremendous epi expectations of what we thought marriage should be and what we thought the other person should be. It revealed our incredible uh, standards and laws, you could say commandments, about what a good husband looks like and what a good wife looks like. Uh, That first year of marriage revealed our exceptional giftedness and talent for talking past each other, for not listening to each other for not seeking to understand each other, for being incredibly selfish, for actually pursuing our own justification in our own eyes and in each other's eyes. It showed that we have an exceptional ability for self-pity when we don't get what we want and when the other person hurts us. Um, 
And it also showed us we had a really good talent for little love. Little sacrifice. Uh, little giving and generosity. Right? Uh, I wish I could say that now I'm the Ephesians 5 husband. And Nancy's the Proverbs 31 wife. Personally, I prefer the Song of Solomon wife, just to make that clear. But there is a Proverbs 31 wife, right? <laughs> You're on it. You're on it. You're tracking with me. Here's the point. The meaning of marriage is inescapable. It's absolutely inescapable. It is fixed in cosmic cement. And we either live within that gravitational pole and flourish and thrive, though in a struggling, fallen way, with the resources and the realities that God has given and blessed marriage with. Or we live against it and we hurt ourselves. We hurt each other. We hurt our community in our marriage. So marriage is a big deal, right? Okay, so marriage has its own relational gravity. What is that? What are the specific gravitational poles in marriage that we need to live within and not work against? Do you know what they are? Look at verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. This was an absolutely revolutionary thing for Jesus to say. I mean, it is very, it, it is very difficult for us to put ourselves in that world and hear what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying women are not under men. Women are not men's subjects and their servants. He's saying that women are not only not under men, men are not over women, uh, men are not their king, and men do not control the wife. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying male and female Husband and wife are side-by-side image bearers. Not one over the other, not one under the other. Jesus is addressing women as equals with men. He is elevating women, and this is absolutely astounding in this culture. But notice what he's doing. He's elevating men, but he's saying something that, I mean women, but he's saying something that's not new. He's quoting Genesis. This goes back to creation, the very fabric and the design, the the relational gravity that's fixed in cosmic cement has always been there. Women have always been elevated with men. Male and female, side by side, not one over the other or one under the other. We either live within this or we live against it, right? Now, in traditional cultures, like in Jesus' day and in traditional cultures today, uh, and in many views of traditional marriage today, we work against this gravitational reality, this relational gravity. How? By placing the position of control in the hands of men. Yeah. Uh, man is given control. Man is put over his wife. The woman is put under her husband. And Jesus says, no, they're side by side. Now, this can be done dogmatically in our beliefs, right? We can have explicit views. We can have explicit confessional statements that do this. That happens. There are bizarre ones. Like there are cultures and there are theologies that the wife is calling the husband sir. 
and master. And to my opinion, it's like, well, why don't you just go the whole way? Just call him your highness, right? But then there's also not just the bizarre, there's the abusive. There's superior attitudes. There's condescending words. There's condescending relationships. There's power plays that go on in explicit beliefs that go like this, right? Uh, One such abusive way to relate to your wife is doing this, and I've never done this. Uh, You pull out the card, the card, do what I say because I'm the head of the house card. Yeah. Husbands, let me tell you, there is no such card. There's no card like that. And if we pull that card out, we already lost. And if we pull out that card, we really don't understand what biblical leadership is all about. Okay? So control over the wife can be seen theologically, but it can also be seen functionally. And this is where we don't have it in our head, but we have it in our heart, and what's in our heart always comes out. And here's what happens, and this is what husbands, what we functionally seek control in our marriage, it can be spotted in our anger and our bitterness. And wives, this happens with you just as well. Whenever you know in your marriage that there's anger and bitterness that's getting between you two, you can know that you are now functionally trying to have control in your marriage. You're functionally trying to be the one over, not alongside your spouse. What do I mean? Well, it goes like this. Uh, It happens when one spouse blocks the other spouse from getting what they want. When one spouse blocks the other one from getting what they want or what they think they must have for their life to be complete and happy, that blocking generates anger and bitterness. And the anger and bitterness is an attempt to try to get control back, to try to get what you think will make you complete and happy. Okay? And again, both husbands and wives struggle for this kind of control in their marriage. And it violates the relational gravity of marriage. It violates that they're equal partners in life. Okay, so who has the place of control in marriage? The relational gravitational pull is this, is that husband and wife are equal partners in life. Equal teammates in life before God. That's what that text is saying. He made man male and female. In other words, it just got done saying he made man in his own image. In the image of God, he made them male and female right alongside of each other. They are equal partners in life. So if the husband doesn't have control in the marriage and the wife doesn't have the place of control in the marriage, who does? Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. God alone has the place of control in the marriage. God alone has it. God joins the husband and wife together. Marriage is his idea, his creation, uh, his doing. He's infused it with his power, his intent, his purpose. He cemented it in the cosmic cement with his realities, right? This is why God says in Genesis, and what Jesus is quoting here, in the midst of struggling for control, he says, uh-uh, uh-uh, let no man separate what I join together. I'm the one in control. I have the place of control in marriage. I'm the only one who is the Lord of the marriage. No one else is. So husbands, this should give us all a great pause, shouldn't it? I mean, man, 
does me. It's like what, whatever biblical leadership means, it doesn't mean that I have control in this relationship. That I have the position of power in this marriage. Whatever biblical leadership means, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean it theologically, and it doesn't mean it functionally. It must mean something else. The other implication is this. Whatever biblical leadership means, it doesn't mean the home revolves around me or the home revolves around the husband. And it also doesn't mean that we have to live like Little House on the Prairie. Wives, this should empower you and free you before God. This should empower you and free you that you are an equal partner and teammate in life with your husband your significance and your worth and your value is the same as your husband's in life before God. I want to be able to tell my daughters that. Bravely. Um, husbands and wives, together, we need each other in order to live a life before God. Do you see that? Again, we have been placed side by side, which means we need each other to actually live life before God. Uh, we become, husband or wife, your marriage becomes strong by being weak. In other words, the place of power in marriage and the place of control in marriage is where the husband and wife gives it up. When the husband and wife give up power and control, they are now at the place of power and control because it's God's. He's the one that's ruling over it. All right, now there are thousands and thousands of implications here, and I'm not going to get into them all. This means in decision-making, right? There's implications for decision-making in this reality, for parenting, resolving conflict. How about all the roles and responsibilities of marriage? I mean, there are so many. So this is what I want to say. We had an announcement, and we're going to do this on June 12th from 6 to 8. Uh, There's going to be a help and hope, an honest discussion about marriage. And that's where these kind of questions and these kind of implications can be fleshed out in a more personal way and a more particular way. Because right now, basically, we can give the principle, we can give some guiding directions, but then there's some specifics that you might have with respect to this. Come to that night, 6 to 8. The Redemptive Gospel Care on Wednesday, June 12, 6 to 8, is going to put a workshop together on this. I'll talk a little bit more about marriage, and there'll be some other presentations, and then there'll be a lot of time to discuss the practical implications of some of the stuff we're talking about. Okay? All right. Uh, Here's one last needed addition to the relational gravity of marriage. Did you see it? And this one's really powerful. Uh, This one is so exciting. And again, what is relational gravity? It's something God has done. So this is not something you have to work up and generate in your marriage. It's done. It's already there. Again, the issue with what Jesus is telling us from Galatia, I mean from Genesis is this is what God has done. He's infused and designed marriage with this DNA. If you work with it, you're within the gravitational poles and flow of the whole cosmos. If you work against it, you fall hard, possibly from great heights, hurting yourself, hurting each other. Okay? Here it is, verse 7 and 8. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Do you see that? And the two shall become what? One flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. This is phenomenal stuff. This is breathtaking stuff. 
this is almost too good to be true kind of stuff. I mean, look what he's saying. Not only are husbands and wives equal partners in a life before God, they are intimate partners, intimate friends in life before God, unlike any other relationship in human relationships. The relationship is so close and the union is so special. Do you know what happens? A new creation is formed. The relationship is so close and so special that two are made one, and that one is a new created relationship. It's different, it's other, it's separate from all other human relationships. So marriage is the most intimate human relationship there is. Marriage is the deepest designed human relationship. So much so that we get this again, that passage where it talks about leaving your father and mother. The husband's allegiance to the wife and the wife's allegiance to the husband surpasses every other relationship except God. Your children don't have the allegiance that a husband and wife are to have to each other. Parents don't have the allegiance. Friends don't have the allegiance. Workers in the community does not have the allegiance. There's only one person that you are more loyal and have allegiance to in marriage than your spouse. That's God himself. So husband and wife are intimate friends. They're intimate, as one book says, allies. They're intimate teammates in life before God. Now, when the Apostle Paul preached on this passage, we looked at it last week in Ephesians 5, the two becoming one. This is what he says right after he quotes Genesis, just like Jesus does in this passage. Here's what Paul says. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that refers to Christ and the church. And now we've gone to a whole other level. Now we've gone to the deeper magic of marriage. It's even deeper than intimate equal partners in life before God. You know why? Because one of the strongest images that God gives throughout the whole Bible to picture and communicate his love to you and me, his love to sinners, is what? Marriage. Two becoming His relationship is so close to you. His covenantal bond is so deep with you. His union is so special with you. His friendship is so intimate with you that the two become... You know what that means? He becomes... Your sin. You're one. We become his righteousness because we're one. My guilt is guilt. My curse is curse. My shame is shame. My failures is failure. 
His beauty, my beauty. His holiness, my holiness. His splendors, And Paul gives us Jesus' marital love. Notice how he does for sinners. He does as the basis for your marriage. Isn't that phenomenal? In other words, he's giving you this picture of God's marital love for you and becoming one with you and so identifying with you that there's an absolutely new creation made. You're no longer on your own. You now can only be described united to him. And he gives that as the basis for his teaching of marriage. You know what he's saying? He is saying that the ultimate gravitational power and the ultimate gravitational pull in your marriage is that. Beyond even what he just said, beyond even though he's fixed in the relational cement, he's fixed equal partners in life. And then he's gone beyond and says the two have become one and that you're most intimate, intimate friends for life. Even beyond that. Beyond that is actually Jesus' marital love for you. That is the engine. That is the fuel. That is the energy. That is the power in a marriage. So he does say this. If husbands and wives receive and receive and receive and receive continuously Jesus' love for them. In other words, Jesus' love becomes more vivid to them. On an ongoing basis, it becomes more graphic, it becomes more compelling, it becomes more controlling. If that happens, husband, if that happens, wife, you'll love your husband. You'll love your wife. And if it doesn't happen, if Jesus' love isn't continually engaging the heart of the spouse and filling the heart of the spouse and rooting and establishing and restoring and renewing and healing the heart of the spouse. You won't love your spouse. We won't do it. So husbands and wives do not love each other well for one reason and one reason only. They're not getting down deep into their bones the marital love of Jesus for them. That's the ultimate reason. The Bible will call that unbelief. And what happens when unbelief is created in the human heart, it creates this vacuum, it creates this God-shaped hole, this God-sized hole that now other things tumble into. And primarily in marriage, we try to take the other spouse and fill them, fill that hole with your spouse. But when Jesus' love begins to fill and establish, as Paul says in Ephesians, now you start loving because you are loved. And you learn love because you are being loved. You love. And so ultimately what Paul says about this passage is your human marriage will always reflect your relationship with God. So if our marriage seems cold and cool, it's because our relationship with God is cold and cool. If our marriage is distant and fractured, it's because we have that kind of distant and fractured relationship with God. So here's the great hope. Here's the great power. He loves you. He became your sin. You have become his righteousness. 
Your coldness is now his. Your distance in your marriage is now his. Your fractures are now his. Your healing is his. And now you can be warmed, you can be filled, you can be healed, and learn to receive that kind of love for you, and you will now learn to give that kind of love away. An accepting, no condemning, not holding records, not marking marks on the calendar, free, one-way, self-giving, sacrificial love. All right. Am I done? I think I need to be. Here's my last charge to you. Husbands and wives, what this text is saying is just be what you are. Be what you are. Be what God has already made marriage to be. You can't reconfigure it. You can't restructure it. You can't re-engineer it. You can't retool it. It's set. So be it. Two who are now one. Be it. Intimate partners in life for God. Equal partners in life for God and before God. Uh, Because, why? Because Jesus has made the two of you one. Because of Jesus' marital love, because he became your sin and you became his righteousness. Amen.